and not be present. We can be at work and not be working. We can be having fun but being miserable. And there are tons of things that fall in that same vein. And beloved, you know, I say this a lot. I say it probably more than I know that I say it. But when I stand here, I'm not standing here as an authority. And some of us look at the pastorate like that. You're the authority. You're the leader. You're, no, 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 no. We, we, we really have messed up understanding the definition of terms, honestly. The authority is Christ. The authority is Christ. And each one of you have the exact same authority to yield his message. To embrace it. To internalize it. To interpret it. To apply it. According to the scripture. We've done a very, very poor job of making sure that while everybody has numerous versions of the Bible on their shelves and in their cars and in their hands and on their phones <laughs> where it used to be a death sentence to be caught with it. We've done a very poor job as a, as a spiritual culture of ensuring that people are eating it and reading it effectively. And there's still this us-them mentality. I talk to pastors a lot through the years and it's a my church and they and them and all this other kind of stuff. And there's just this distance. There's this lack of intimacy. Lack of interest. And the interest is only in the role that I feel, fill, or the, the, the job that I have, the obligation. And that's as far as it goes for so many people. And then we meet those things with fake smiles and fake laughter and we wonder why life seems miserable. Because we are miserable. And it has been said that misery loves company. And oh my gosh, can they not throw a family reunion? Well, just open your eyes and ears and listen and look and see the world that we live in. And how it is just so inundated with misery over and over again. Even that which is good and prudent and profitable. They're putting the, the icing of misery upon the cake of pleasure. Guilt has become the new glue that holds the world intact. Fear is the compass through which we walk and traverse this life. I am not the authority. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not here to hold you to a standard that I myself am not able to keep. I am here to show you what I am learning that you may learn also and apply it to your lives. And if you think I'm ahead of you anywhere spiritually, it's only by a few hours. Maybe by a few minutes. Because I've learned to speak over the last quarter century. I've learned to present myself and posture myself in a place of seemingly etiquette, somewhat professional, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm just like you. And I used to have a whole lot more time to study the scripture than I do now. And I was like, well, I'm working. I'm t yeah. But it all boils down to one thing. And it boils down to one idea. 
And what is that? Living the Christian life boils down to one idea. Being a Christian boils down to one idea. I was like, I didn't tell you what I was talking about. <laughs> Who you are. It boils down to who you are. And if I have to be the professional, if I have to be the expert, if I have to be the academic, if I have to be this, then how can I do that and be caring and loving and interested? As a pastor, if I have to do all these and be all these things, how can I be me? If I have to be and do all these things as a husband, how can I be me? If I have to be and do all these things as a father, how can I be me? Who am I? Who are you? It's not an easy answer there. There's no easy answer there. Because when you say, if you walk out under the porch of the cosmos and say, who am I? Somebody's going to answer. You're going to hear something back. And you're going to be drawn. Even if it's terrible. Even if it is coated in misery. Even if it is held together by fear. Even if it is mapped out by guilt. Those analogies might have been different the first time around. But even if those things are true, we run to it. We follow it. We go, okay, this is who I am, and there's nothing I can do to change it. This is who I am. This is who I want to be. This is what's going on. The Bible gives us our identity. The Scripture as believers gives us our identity. But now here comes the conundrum. The conundrum is that, oh yeah, the Bible says is the precursor to about 99% of all false teaching. So how do you discern the difference? You need to know the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God is knowing God. Knowing God is intimacy. Intimacy with God through Jesus Christ the Son. The story, the narrative, the overarching reality of what the Bible is and what it is intended to communicate is about God's reveal, God's revelation of himself to his people whom he loves despite the fact they don't love him. And that is the picture of the good report we call the gospel. It means the good report. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. There's a man named Jesus of Nazareth who is God who created the world in which he walks and the body in which he lives and the womb from which he came. And he walked this earth and he taught of peace and love and hope. And everybody who had all the answers, who am I? They all told everyone who they were. And the Bible does not teach us that we are worms. The Bible does not teach us that we are wrong. The Bible does not teach us that we are, as we would see the Puritans, maggots. That the old comedian back in the 80s. That I heard in New Orleans one time, and he talked about the old King James prayer and, you know, the pious preaching. And he used, uh, he used the, the tune to, uh, uh, what's the, uh, a mighty fortress. I know that I am but a worm, so step on me, God, and watch me squirm. You know. I mean, that's the sentiment, right? That's the sentiment that many of us have in this Christian walk that I'm just no good, good for nothing. Listen, we're not going to talk against the teaching of sinfulness and the sin nature or what we call in theological circles depravity. We're not doing that, but we are going to show 
that the Bible does not tell us that that's who we are once we are found by the Spirit. And the reality of it, we are the righteousness of God in spite of the fact that we sin. Because he has declared us so. I read the full chapter 8 of Romans at the beginning of our service. We are his righteousness. Now why is it that we live in a world that causes so much stress and grief in the context of Christianity? Because we have misunderstood the application of this identity. The application of this identity is boiled down to two things. And that is to love the Lord our God with all that we are. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. It's the great commandment, right? So I want to explore the great commandment from this perspective this morning. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And for some of you folks, with all your soul. What's that mean? Everything that you are in all parts of your person and being, your ontological essence, needs to love God. Whether you're pooping or praising, God's in the house. I mean, you know, we're supposed to be loving God. That was for the adult men in the room (laughs) who are all laughing. But it doesn't stop there, does it? To love the Lord your God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, is on equal footing. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about when we love others. When we do this, we are displaying the work of God. And to display the work of God is known as his glory, is to glorify him, to show him and his work and his hands. The same is true in life. When we understand the love of God for us and the giving of his son and we realize our true identity, this changes us. And this change allows us in the mind to see the good in others, to forgive them. To love them and to make intimacy a goal of life by overcoming prejudices and working toward reconciliation in mutual ways. I want to further express the reality that we need to be serious about our mental and emotional intelligence as a people. I mean, there's such a fad about, you know, fasting. I fast two days a week. It's, it's good for me. Got into that habit. And I didn't do it for a couple of weeks. I'm like, you know what? I need to go back to that fasting. Just, I feel good. Don't know why. Don't really care to understand the science. Somebody said, hey, why don't you try this? Tried it. Worked. So there's this fad of fasting. There's this fad of nutrition. There's There's always this fad of dieting. There's always something going on with some kind of thing going on in our, you know, social feeds. Have you tried this? You know, have you licked the bottom of a toad? Have you, you know, stared at the sun for 30 minutes without sunglasses? Ah, it'll do wonders for your eyes. I mean, you know, all sorts of silly things. And then there are some good things. There are some good practical things about getting enough sleep and drinking enough water. I mean, you know, is it too much? Eggs are good, eggs are bad. Ah, you know, there's always something. and and, And I see it more in Christian circles than I do anywhere else. I see this emphasis on physical health. All the time. You know, 98 years old, feel like I'm 40. No, you don't. 
You've forgotten 40. You feel like you're 80 because you've forgotten 40, see? You go, man, I feel like I'm 30 today. No, you don't. You feel like you're 45. You've forgotten 30. I mean, you know, you just can't. You, this magic drug, this magic drink, that's called caffeine. I mean, what's the point? There's always something. Oh, we've got to learn how to communicate. We've got to learn how to build relationships. We've got to learn how to do this. We've got to learn how to do that. Let's do this for the glory of God. Great, but where is our emotional intelligence? Why are you talking about this? Because the Bible speaks of it. I'm just now calling it what we call it today. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Don't you think that takes some brain work to figure out? Don't you think Romans 12 and the renewal of our mind, don't you think how we learn Christ is important? Don't you understand that this is far beyond academics, that this is about our spiritual self, our hearts, our minds, our souls, the way we think, the way we process things, the way we hear, the way we uh, allow our brains to write scripts? But no, no, no. Sit down, close ears, open mouth, shove word, regurgitate what I tell you to do. That's where most pastors fail. Why? Because they don't know any better themselves. The importance of the great commandment to love God and love others. And we find that first listed in the scripture in Matthew 22. Let's go there and read it. A bunch of scripture. Maybe I'll get through it today. Verse 34, 22, 34, Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Oh, he's, he's tough. We've we got to go get him. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The great commandment. To love God and display his glory. To love God and display His glory. Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. How in the world do we do that? You see, this is where the error pops in. This is where the, this is where the, the, the purity culture, and that, that's a broad term for a lot of little things. Some of us may be thinking different things, but I say it all plays together in this. This purity, puritan culture, that we continue to live under the oppression of as evangelicals, as Christians, would say to us that what you need to do is you need to test your affections. You need to test your thoughts. You need to test your temptations. You need to write out all the bad things you ever think and think about, all the bad things you've done and think about them, and all the things you wish you wouldn't have done and you need to think about them. And so the, what we do when we do these things is that we see how bad we are and then we get to the end of ourselves where we really just want to jump off a short bridge and say, I can't! And that's when we know we're spiritual. 
Because on our way down, we reach up and God's hand is right there. We just have to grab it. That is ridiculous. And that's where we are. We have generations and generations of young men and young women who believe that their very existence is sinful. We have generations of young boys who are taught that women are objects for them to Google over. Google over, whatever it means. We're taught women that they're bad for just being present. It's nonsense. Well, that's not loving God because you have an intrusive fault. Shame on you. Nonsense. And so we build decades of Christians who lie, who pretend, who posture, and who ponder what a life without sin must be like instead of praising God for His glorious grace and pressing into the promises of His purpose in Christ and resting. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. is effectually displayed in loving others as yourself. <laughs> and this is not new. We've talked about it for 12 years. The September will be 12 years. A lot has happened over 12 years. A lot has happened over two years. A lot has happened over 12 hours. A lot happens, right? It only takes a second. It only takes one thought. It only takes one instance. It only takes one conversation for things to be different. Well, hear the conversation of mercy and grace and love. And let it be different in you. The displaying God's glory. We glorify God by showing others who He is. You know that's what it means, right? To give God glory is not to say, oh, we love you. No, that's to give God praise. Oh, we thank you. That's to give God thanks. To give God glory is to say, look, ta-da! Look, Jesus did it. I didn't come, oh, Jesus, you're awesome. Oh, whoa, look at you. Who do you think you are? No, 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 no. I'm just, a, I'm, just a, I'm just a window. I'm showing you the Father. Everything I just did, this is the Father working. Everything I just said, this is the Father speaking. How can you be so kind? This is the Father. This is the Father. This is the Father's work. You are created in Christ Jesus. You are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He created beforehand for us to walk in. This is loving one another. Anybody can be snarky. Anybody can be obligated. Anybody can do their job. That doesn't give God glory to be dependable. Pharisees were dependable. They dressed right. They spoke rightly. They ate correctly. They prayed powerfully. 
but they didn't know how to love. Beloved, let us love one another. This is John's first epistle, chapter 4. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now see, this, you know what we know, right? This isn't a challenge for you to test your faith to see if you're born again. We don't do that. And I can take a pretext out of the Bible and I can have us all riding Harleys by the end of the service if I wanted to. Yeah, there we go, Tom. We just crank them up. That would be our praise music. We can twist all this to make it say whatever we think we want it to say. And we can be genuinely concerned about the well-being of others when we do so, which is where most people who burden the church over their unconvertedness are. They're not maniacal monsters. They're misguided maniacs. And as a shepherd, the sheep are going nuts. What's happening? Ah, I'm going to jump with them. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. Okay, I got it. Okay, I found the right place. All right, y'all come on. Because most of the time when the church is scattering like crazy, the shepherd's on the wrong side of the field anyway. Stupid shepherd. I mean, you know, you could just, ah. If you want some coffee time with me, I'm happy to talk for two hours. I love free therapy. Some of you got the joke. Anyone who does not love God, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. So if we say we don't love, we don't know Him. It's like we're speaking into ignorance. Well, God is this, and God is that, and God does this, and God does that. Da, 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 da. No, no, no. You're singing the wrong song. You're looking at the wrong show. You've got the wrong script. God is love, and if you don't know love, you don't know Him. You're talking about something else. See, this is what John is trying to help us see in 1 John 4. This is the second half of this commandment, to love your neighbor. And in doing so, we actually love God. We show God for who he is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we know God. And this is how we know God is love. And this is how we know who God is, which is love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we would live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Rich, rich, rich. This is love. Beloved, if God loved us this way, then we ought to love others this way. No one has ever seen God. Here's the the kick. Here's how we know what I'm saying is true. Not only does John chapter 1 teach us this, and all throughout John's gospel and other places in Paul's writing and James and Peter, but we see also here in this very context, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And John will go on to say that perfect love casts away all fear. See, fear and doubt and uncertainty and frustration 
and, 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 and all of these things, contemptuous, is all antithetical to Christ. These are not the fruits of the Spirit. This is not God's love manifesting in the hearts of His people. So we display God's glory through love for each other. And it starts at the microscopic level. It starts at the internal level. And this is where people get a rub, start rubbing and going, ah, Tippins, you've really slid a little sideways. Loving yourself. We'll talk about that as the weeks progress. Because if I don't love myself, how can I love my wife like myself? And if I can't love my wife, how can I love my children? If I can't love my children, how can I love my church? If I can't love my church, how can I love my friends? If I can't love my friends, how can I love my neighbor? If I can't love my neighbor, how in the heck am I ever going to love my enemies? And if I can't do those things, then I can't love God at all. Thankfully, he loves me anyway because he loved me first. You see, the pressure is gone. It's gone. So we just have to decide, do we want to live in a joyful, free, authentic way? Or do we want to live under a self-perceived burden? I choose the prior. Christ's example of love and obedience to the Father displays the glory of God. Jesus would say, but I do as the Father's commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here, Jesus says. I'm going to show you how I love the Father. I'm going to lay down my life for you. What's that got to do with you? Okay, I, I hear you, Pastor. I'm walking with you. I understand it. Absolutely. I'm in 100% agreement. What's that got to do with me now, right? How's my identity tied up in this? Well, I'm glad you asked. In John 3, we see Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And in that discussion, there is a lot of cool stuff. And I might have even said this last week, but you know, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, the only one that he has, that those believing ones have everlasting life. But those unbelieving ones do not have life. That's a paraphrase. For God came into the world, sent his son into the world to what? That the world would be saved through him, not to condemn it. Not to destroy it. He's not going to flood it. He's not going to burn it and kill everything in it. I mean, this is, this is the picture. This is seeing God for who he is. Is God just? Yes. Is God vengeful? Absolutely. And he's just in that vengeance. But his love is manifested. And that love is applied to a people despite them, but also because of them, because they are the objects of his affection. Otherwise, we are the trigger. We are the catalyst to how God sees us. But we're not. God, before the world began, loved us. And he demonstrated the love through the giving of the Son, Jesus Christ, for us. So what does that say about us? 
We know ourselves, but how does God know us? Read Song of Solomon. Read Genesis 1 and 2. See the picture. See the perfectness. See the reality of this world that we live in that we have just riddled with shame and guilt and overbearingness. (laughs) And in doing so, we have hated each other for so long. Versus what the little tiny shadows are showing us about Christ in the church. That that we are the object of his passion. And his passion is not for his pleasure. But for ours. Oh father take this cup from me. It's going to be too much fun. And I just don't feel like I should be. I don't deserve so much good thing. So many good things. That's not the prayer of Christ. Oh father take this cup from me. Not because it's going to be so splendid a drink, because it's going to be such horrid wrath. But not my will but yours be done because of Christ's love for the Father, because of Christ's love for you. (laughs) We need to get a little intelligent about our emotions on that issue, don't we? We need to understand the spiritual side of things. The greatest spiritual warfare, I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and if we don't do anything else today, this is important. The greatest spiritual warfare in our minds is the subtle, silent recording that continues to tell us to not to see ourselves through the eyes of God. And in doing so, it's almost like winding up the toys. You remember when we were kids, you had to wind up the toys or pull the strings. And when they finally came out with batteries, you know, after like four days, the batteries exploded. And you're like, what is this pile of dust? That's how it works. The enemy speaks this identity lie. And then it just does its thing. It just moves on out. It just claps the cymbals like the monkey or it runs like the little car or it goes in a circle and barks like the little dog. You know those toys. It just starts it in emotion and it just goes. And it's spiritual. You are who God says you are. And the love of God is real and powerful. And purposeful. And we need to transform the way we think about this. We need to understand that when Paul writes to the Galatians. Who have really lost their identity in Christ. And found a new identity in the concept of obeying the laws of Moses. And the concept of circumcision. The mutilation of the flesh. As a spiritual picture of their personhood. Of their place before the Father. Of their perfection before God. If I could just do this, then I would be right. And you know what? It doesn't stop there. When love dictates things that must be present for love to be active, it is never going to stop. 
the can will be kicked down the road to such a degree that it'll fall off the cliff into the sea and continue to sink until it falls to the bottom of a cavern and then finds a whole nother ocean underneath to sink in. Love doesn't do that. God's love doesn't do that. Our love cannot do that. If there's any condition on whether or not we will create intimacy with someone, or if there's any condition through which God requires intimacy with him that is up to us, then we're not loving. And thankfully, all the conditions that God requires, he has met. Complete judgment for justice, which is righteousness. And he poured it all out on Christ. And Paul tells these Galatians, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Galatians 2.20, you know the text. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is who we are. Paul goes on to say, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if righteousness were through conditions, if righteousness was through loving God through obedience, then Christ died for nothing. But what does that do when that identity is unfolded for us? It transforms our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We talked about that three weeks ago, I believe. And then we are able, we are freed. We are driven, we are empowered to love others and to pursue intimacy. And in doing so, we glorify God. And in doing so, we love God. I mean, this is not rocket science. It's not a very difficult argument. The greatest absorption of this reality is found in children. They understand it. Because they haven't spent a lot of time in their heads hiding from their own attachment disorders. Hiding from their emotional compounding heaps of garbage. Hiding. Because we either hide or we just jump headfirst in and wallow. And those are the two different types of people. We avoid it or we're an anxious ball of fire. Oh, you're different? Then tell me what it is so that I might inform all the world. There is a different. There is another place. And it's at rest. <laughs> it's at rest. And not at rest as in distraction. Not at rest as in sleeping it off. Not at rest as in being too drunk to, to think about it. Not at rest in pretending no, at rest, like literally at rest. In other words, you can look at the circumstances that you're in and you can say, this is terrible, nothing's going to change, blah, blah, blah. People say, no, no, have a positive attitude. I'm positive about it. I'm positively certain that this is bad. I'm positively certain that no one cares. You know, listen to what I'm about to say. I'm about to give you the punchline here. I'm positively certain. And you probably are lying to yourself, but being okay with it and being at rest changes our perception of it. 
How do we do that? Knowing the love of God, finding our identity here. We now are able to pursue intimacy, seeing the good in others, and overcoming our prejudices. I don't have time to get into the book of James, but James chapter 2 starts out with that. The first 7, 8, 9, 10 verses talks about having prejudices, having biases. And at the end of that little discussion, he says these words. If you, really fulfill the, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. I love, I love how the Scriptures tell us about sin. Nobody tells us about sin that way in real life, right? You know, you got 700 words that you've read and studied. You've got 60 minutes of teaching and you've got all the stuff and pastors can get there and beat the pulpit. Sinful! You know, so like Yosemite Sam. Tasmanian devil. Whatever personification of toxic masculinity that we could put before the children in the 30s and 40s. And yet, James just says, you sin. And he leaves it at that. <laughs> That's wrong. Don't do that. Paul does the same thing. Yeah, don't do that. It's just sin. These are sins. You know what they are. Okay, moving right along. The righteousness of God. You are a royal priesthood. You're a child. You're adopted. You called God pops. What? But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And if you're committing sin, you're guilty under the law as a transgressor of that. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. See, the law isn't a fixed thing. It's in a fixed one reality. It's like, this is my righteousness. It's not like the laws we have today. A speeding ticket is just not quite as bad as like murder. But you still have disobeyed the law. You just got a bunch of subsections. There are no subsections in God's righteousness. Partiality. We don't do that. God doesn't do that with us. He's no respecter of persons. What does that look like? What does that look like when I start seeing partiality? What does that look like in my life? Well, we, we learn to forgive others of Christ, as Christ has forgiven us. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, Paul would say. This is good and prudent instruction. Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Only say and speak that which is Good for building each other up. What? There goes my free time. There goes my leisure activities. There goes our Friday night family game times. I mean, isn't it fun to trash talk? It's always been the case. I remember being trash talk as a child by friends. And it was a little coarser than it is now, more direct. Yeah, you're ugly. I hate you. I wish you were dead. You know, now it's sort of like, oh, we see who doesn't have the strength to pick up a gallon of milk these days. Because <laughs> just because the approach is different doesn't mean it's not less corrupting. But that's not the emphasis. Paul's not putting the emphasis there. That's not the emphasis of the love of God. 
Only talk about what's building up. That's what love is. As fits the occasion, not obeying a busybody and sticking our nose in other people's businesses. If somebody doesn't ask, we don't intrude. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Paul says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you're sealed by the Spirit of God. By the love of God, His Spirit is in you. So therefore, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Let it all be put away. Just take all that stuff and put it away. Huh? I'm going to put that away. That very idea makes me angry. That's because we've lost our identity. When I have anger, it's because I've lost sight of my identity. When I have anger, it is almost, I have been working on this for months. Literally, every time I feel an emotion to find out why I feel it and what the root of it is. And you know what? I've yet to find one time where it wasn't because something that I needed wasn't given to me. Something emotional. Something psychological. Something spiritual that I didn't have. A need. It wasn't being met. And you know what I've always found too in all of this? I mean, I'm a hundred, I, it's anecdotal. I understand it may be different for you. But for me, it all boils down to looking at myself through the difference, uh, in a different lens and not finding my pure identity and my soul identity in Christ. Because when I see myself in Christ, I'm sort of impressed with him, with the Father's love and with what he's doing. And I'm not impressed like, look at the kind of guy I am, because uh, 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 that would ruin that, because I know the kind of guy I am. I'm impressed that I'm counted righteous. I'm impressed that I'm an object of passion. I'm, in, I'm impressed that I'm loved by the Father. That's impressive, God, to the praise of your glory. It's not about me anymore. But what that does is then allows us to actually see ourselves in the right light so that when I feel bitter, when I feel angry, when I feel wrathful, when I clamor and slander and, and malicious, I can go, gosh, just put this stuff away. It's like getting out them 28 jeans that you just kept for 10 years thinking, I'll get back in them one day. No, you're not. You're not going to get in that. That waist isn't going to be that small again. No, you're not. It's like you're not going to wear your baby shoes. Just pack that junk back away. You don't need, this is infantile stuff. This is stuff of the flesh. This is not the spiritual thing. This is not the fruit. This is the, this is the old you. The new you is growing up. And it's just as good as the old you. So put it away, and then Paul says in verse 32 of, of, of Ephesians 4, he says, be kind to one another. Here is, I want to preach a whole sermon on this next word, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does that mean? What do we do? I'll tell you what it means. It means that we need to be purposeful about making intimacy a goal. 
if intimacy is not a goal, if we're fighting against it in our lives, we're fighting against it with the Lord and vice versa. Okay? And there are levels of that. I believe the first foundation of that is reconciliation. From now on, therefore, Paul would say to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and look, see, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the work of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of grace, the message of reconciliation, the message of love. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We ought to become the righteousness of God. In Matthew 11, Jesus prays these words. He says, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. This is God Almighty, the Son, speaking. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we're an anxious pile of mess or we're an avoidant. We're anxious. We're trying to escape. We're worried about it all the time or we're paying it no mind, or we're at rest, and we're secure, and we know ourselves. We're not lying to ourselves. We know ourselves, but we also know ourselves in Christ. So we can find peace and rest in the love of God, and we can care then for our health, not just our physical health, like so many Christians are so excited about, but our mental health. There you are again, talking about mental health. Listen, where is your faith? Is faith in your left hand? Is it in always holding a particular object and never letting it go? Is faith in the phylactery, putting the word of God in front of you so that you may always see it? No, faith is in your heart. Faith is in your mind. The Bible talks more about fear and anxiety than people want to give credit for it. We just sort of, we avoid it. We don't want to deal with that. That's okay. But we can be at rest in the gospel when everything else in life is falling apart. We can be emotionally intelligent about how we're feeling even when we can't deal with it right now so we can rest in the context of what God's love has done for us and is doing for us this very second. The Bible commands us to not be anxious. And we do that through prayer, because if we don't ask, God will not give. 
those needs that we see so passionately not given to us and worry and worry and worry, it's because we're not praying for God to give them to us. How awful would it be in a 12-course meal on a holiday if people just came up and began to take and pile on two piles or two stir, uh, uh, scoops of everything on the table onto your plate without ceasing. And you're like, whoa, 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 I can't. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, stop, whoa. And just pile it on. Just pile it on. It's about now you're fed. Eat it. I didn't need nine different types of potatoes. I can't get to the yams. Ah. But if you say, I'd like some bread... Somebody would give you the bread. We have to have the, the, the security to ask God for what we need. We have to have the security to ask each other for what we need. To tell one another. Many of you are good at reminding me that. What do you need? Oh, it's all good. What do you need? We can build this. We can build this in ourselves. We can build this by the Spirit. We can build emotional health through love and empathy and community. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with true brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with low people. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, that means we can't help what other people do, live peaceably with all. Now the most important piece of all this, I've already alluded to it, I've talked about it, every single point, but the most important piece of all of this is the fact that this points to the gospel. <clears throat> Jesus' passion, his love for us, his love for the Father, is our hope as believers. It's not just the model and the example, it's the power of God for us. You see how easy this has been? I want you to think about it for a second. This is an easy sermon. It's an easy teaching. It's an easy reception. But yet there's still turmoil here because some of us think, wow, we're failing in this area. This is not the point. The point is God has not failed you. His love has not failed you. You love him and you love others. But even when you aren't, his love for you never fails. Jesus' love for us is a selfless love displayed throughout his entire ministry. His death on the cross, that while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ reached out to lowly people, to sinful people, according to the culture, to those who were sick and hurting and hungry, and he served them. And it wasn't the ultimate end of his message or, or of his mission because he had a greater mission to provide clothing of righteousness, to provide clothing of bread that never ends, of himself. And he showed his love for the Father in obey, obeying the Father, submitting to the Father's will for the sake of his people. And Jesus' resurrection is our victory. 
Jesus' resurrection is truth that this love was not in vain. And one day, beloved, we will be transformed into His likeness. And we will dwell with Him forever. Never, ever, ever to have to have these conversations again. But to really sit in a place of true theology, of just adoration and joy. Enjoying one another without pretense. What does that even look like? Beloved, love and identity and hope and faith, all of these are interconnected. And I pray that as we take the table today, as we remember the love of God, that we can pray that He will help us meet the need of loving others. And that we will start by learning who we are and loving ourselves. And that sounds counter to the culture of Christianity. But I say, let it be. For the Word of God would test and prove us right or wrong. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time today, there's much to be said, much to think about. And sometimes we think, well, we need that. We're looking for that powerful moment. We're, we're trying to feel something here. But Lord, we just need to know some things. It's like a grocery list. Sometimes we just need to look at the truth and say, okay, this is what we need. And this is what we're going to get. That we might just rest in it. Knowing that your purposes and your promises will stand. And that nothing can take us away from you. So, Father, help us to be content until you work these things out in us. Help us to be unashamed. Lord, help us to encourage one another to love and to good deeds. This is what we're to do. We're to teach each other and to encourage each other every day to love as you've called us to love. Not by shaming, by encouraging, building up. You can do this. I know this is difficult. I know you're hurting. Meeting each other's needs, Lord, whatever it might be, Father, put the words and the wisdom in us, not from the world, but from your word. And remind us of this beautiful, 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 good report of Christ who has given himself for us, that we might be called your righteousness. In his name, and because of your love, we pray. Amen.